Good evening and welcome to Socrates in the City. A pleasure to see all of you uh, here tonight. Now, I hope you don't mind my asking, because uh, I always want to know, uh, if you are here tonight, would you raise your hand? I'm just curious. It's like about 8%. That's, that's sad. That's sad. Well, thank you for being here, those of you who are being here. And those of you who are still arriving, uh, what can I tell you? Um, it is amazing. I always find it amazing how many people will show up when you offer uh, access to a fancy club, uh, unlimited wine, uh, and a speaker who flatters one's intellect. Very impressive that you would show up for, for those three things. Not very, uh, not very attractive things, but somehow uh, you come. You come. Now, I, I think it was the, I don't know if it was the last time we got together. We've been doing this for 10 years, so it all runs together. But uh, let me first of all say that my name is Eric Metaxas. I'll be your server this evening. Uh, any, I'll take your drink orders now if you'd like to make your way to the salad bar. Uh, that would be, that'd be fine. But I was going to say we've been doing this for 10 years, and... Um, they all run together, but either the last time that we met, there was a couple who'd come from India specifically to our debate. Uh, I wasn't making that up. So they got the whole Golden Hubcap Award because they specifically came for this event from India. Uh, we had a woman come from Alabama. Uh, don't, don't be shy. No one's looking at you. Come in. Um, the, uh, there are plenty of seats down front here, but you'll have to... People will stare at you. Um, the... Um, <clears throat> Hello, Dick. Come on in. We're still open. Uh, the, uh, <laughs> there was a couple from Alabama who came uh, recently, and, uh, or it was just a woman. She got the Golden Hubcap Award. Tonight, uh, in the reception, I met a couple that came here from Fort Worth specifically to be at this event. They didn't have to be in New York for any other reason. They came to uh, visit Socrates in the city, and I'm embarrassing them. They're, they're right here, and they get the Golden Hubcap Award. You get... This is true. Yeah, you do. Uh, Mr. and Mrs. Cross, you get the gold. You get five free DVDs. I'm sorry, CDs. You do. That's true. That's the Golden Hubcap Award. You get that. They're back there. Are we, we marking this down? They're going to ask for five. You're going to give them five because they've come from Fort Worth to be at Socrates in the city. All right. Um, as some of you already know, we are celebrating 10 years of Socrates uh, in the city. Uh, it was uh, in the fall of 2000, 10 years ago, that we launched this grand experiment. And I know some of you are asking, what grand experiment? Um, I know. Well, a few of us simply wanted to know uh, if we offered access to um, a fancy club, unlimited wine, and a speaker that flattered one's intellect, how many people would show up? And of course, my friends, you are the answer to that question. <laughs> you are the ones you've been waiting for. <clears throat> and cliches and slogans are the new black. Keep that in mind. Very popular. Very popular. Um, tonight we do have a speaker who will flatter your intellects. Indeed, I'm afraid that much of what Dr. Uh, Elshin has to say is going to fly over uh, the heads of some of you. Uh, I won't say who exactly, but if you think it might be you, I also think it might be you. Uh, I don't know what I mean by that, but you, I think you know what I mean. Um, before I say more about Dr. Elstein, uh, as I think you know, we are officially celebrating 10 years of Socrates in the city on December 3rd with our dear friend Chuck Colson. Uh, Chuck uh, used to work for Richard Nixon, who was the vice president uh, for Eisenhower, who oversaw D-Day, and that was during World War II. Perhaps you're familiar with World War II. I'm trying to bring it down, you know, to where you'd recognize who I'm talking about. Um, but Chuck... Uh, it's our third annual Christmas uh, gala, or gala, 
And um, the discounted tickets uh, end tonight. So if you haven't bought a discounted ticket, that's uh, tonight at midnight. The, the regular price uh, takes effect. Um, it is a fundraiser, so we do hope you'll dig deep, maybe buy a table. You don't want to miss this event. Uh, Chuck Colson, I can say this truthfully, never speaks at events like this because he despises the sort of people it attracts. <laughs> no offense. But we did twist his arm, and he's overcome his revulsion uh, to the types of audiences that normally come to these uh, types of things. So it should be a very special evening. But, uh, but in all seriousness, Chuck doesn't do events like this anymore, and I'll leave it to you to figure out why that is. Um, it will be a, an extremely special event. We are, this is 10 years of Socrates, okay? So this is, we're going to pull out all the stops. Uh, Santa Claus will be there again, third year in a row. Uh, also Rita Cosby, that's true. She's going to be there. Uh, so far, those are the only confirmed celebrities. Uh, Rita Cosby and Santa Claus. Uh, the Easter Bunny's out of town, and Geraldo is, I don't know, he's getting his back waxed or something <laughs> unpleasant. Uh, he says he's uh, busy. Um, there will be, of course, a number. Now, this is hard to do. There are a number of Fox News uh, talking heads uh, and anchors who are not blondes. <laughs> now, that's, that's amazing. That's not easy to find. They're easy to find. I think there are two of them here tonight. I know Andrea Tanteros is here. Are you here, Andrea? Where'd you go? Where'd you go? You're not blonde, are you? That we know of, right? That's your natural color? So, Fox News person, not a blonde. So there's one. Is Lauren Green here? Lauren Green? Lauren's not here. Oh, gosh, I knew it. It's just like, you know, it's like the Red Sox curse. You just can't get two of them in one room. It's like there's got to be one blonde. Is there a blonde Fox News person here? No? All right. I wanted to ask Lauren Green uh, how life was on the Ponderosa, but she's not going to... She's not going to oblige me by raising her hand. Okay, so if you're not registered for the 10th anniversary celebration, please sign up. It's going to be a crazy event, December 3rd, Chuck Colson. Okay, uh, to tonight. Tonight's speaker is uh, Dr. Jean Bethke Elstein. Dr. Jean Bethke Elstein is regularly named as one of America's foremost public intellectuals. Of course, the problem is that public intellectual has ceased to be a category that actually exists in this culture since the 1970s. Um, but we're not going to mention that tonight because she's right here in the front row. So, whatever. Um, she is the Laura Spellman Rockefeller Professor of Social and Political Ethics at the University of Chicago Divinity School. She's also the holder of the Levy Chair in the Foundations of American Freedom at Georgetown University. In case you're wondering about the Levy Chair, I'm told that it's an upholstered wing back with carved <laughs> mahogany feet. And at auction, it would probably raise $2,500 to $3,000. And that's a conservative uh, estimate. But, of course, I'm conservative. Um, I'm told that if the mahogany feet hadn't been painted orange, that the Levy chair, the estimate would have gone considerably higher. So what a pity that uh, some kid did that or something like that. In, in any case, moving on, Dr. Elstein has written many books, including Democracy on Trial, which was a New York Times notable book for 1995. She's also written Just War Against Terror, The Burden of American Power in a Violent World, named one of the best nonfiction books of 2003 by Publishers Weekly. Uh, Professor Elstein has edited numerous books. She writes frequently for journals of civic opinion and lectures widely in the United States and abroad. And if you hear about her schedule, it's sort of unbelievable uh, how many speaking engagements she does have. She is a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, a Guggenheim Fellow, and holder of the McGuire Chair in Ethics at the Library of Congress. The McGuire chair is covered in a chintzy yellow fabric. 
with an oriental design of monkeys and peacocks. The feet are carved in an acanthus leaf design, and the chair is not for sale, and Dr. Elstein bitterly resents the very idea that it could be, so please don't bring that up. She is also a fellow at the Institute for Advanced Studies, Princeton. Never heard of it. Uh, she served on the board of the National Humanities Center and currently is a member of the, Nas- of the Council of the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Scholars Council of the Library of Congress, and the board of the Endowment for Democracy. In 2008, she was appointed to the President's Council on Bioethics. And in 2006, she delivered the prestigious Gifford Lectures at the University of Edinburgh, uh, joining such previous uh, Gifford lecturers as William James Hannah Arendt, Karl Barth, Reinhold Niebuhr, Shelley Winters, Angie... (laughs) Angie Dickinson, and Joe Namath, thank you. Um, You know, they can't all be, you know, big intellectuals. They're going to get a couple of ringers in there. She's been a visiting professor at Oberlin College, although Shelley Winters was very bright. You don't realize that. Uh, Visiting professor at Oberlin College, Yale University, and Harvard. She is the recipient of nine honorary degrees. Nine. Madam, have you no shame? There are many, many people out there who've never had a single honorary degree. And I'm not mentioning my name, but I have to say, to have nine of them, it's uh, somehow unseemly, but we can't really get into that. Uh, Professor Elstein was elected a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences in 1996. She's the author of more than 500 published essays. She's also contributing editor for The New Republic. I don't know about you, but this is beginning to seem like boasting, isn't it? Incredible, incredible. Um, Professor, <laughs> Professor Elstein has been a fellow at the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton. I mentioned that. She's also the recipient of the Ellen Gregg Ingalls Award for Excellence in Classroom Teaching, the highest award for undergraduate teaching at Vanderbilt. There's got to be something normal in here that makes us not feel bad, because I'm feeling very lazy uh, as I listen to all this. There's got to be something normal, and I think I found it right at the end. She is married. She's the mother of four children and the grandmother of four children, so that's excellent. Um, Finally, something that I can relate to. Uh, You probably don't realize it, but I I am a grandmother as well. Um, Tonight... uh, Tonight, Dr. Elstein is going to talk about the big question. And, of course, you know Socrates and City is about asking the big question. Socrates famously said the unexamined life is not worth living. Um, and then he killed himself in an alley. You heard about that. Uh, Socrates said the, the unexamined life is not worth living. Um, and so Socrates in the city wants to think about the big question. So the big question that Dr. Elstein uh, we'll be talking about tonight is the, the, t- the subject of her book titled Sovereignty, God, State, uh, and Self. So the question is, who gets to decide, God, me, or the state? That's the subject of the book. And the book, uh, which was for sale and which I hope you'll avail yourself of and get signed, uh, that book itself is a compilation of her Gifford lectures in 2006, which I am told are very prestigious lectures indeed. Um, As usual, we will hear from our speaker for about 35 minutes or so. We will then have time for Q&A, which is the portion of our program where people get to drone on and draw attention to themselves. Uh, And then we will end promptly at... Welcome, Mr. Hackney. Please, don't be embarrassed. Come come in. Um, We will end promptly at 8.30, as we always do, and there's time for more wine and hors d'oeuvres and hanging around and getting to know everybody. So please, uh, how about a warm Socrates in the city welcome for Dr. Jean Bethke Elstein.
Well, uh, thank you very much, Eric, I think. Um, uh, knowing that I was to appear a second time before this lively crowd, I decided that I should, knowing that Eric was going to introduce me, uh, that I should leaven my serious comments with a bit of humor uh, right off the bat. So I asked Bobby, who's one of our 14-year-old grandsons, we have two of them uh, who are that age, if he could give me some comedic advice, on, um, because he's a very funny kid. And he paused for a moment, and then he said, Grandma, you're funny enough. I don't think you need any jokes. So um, now that comment can be taken a number of different ways. Um, I chose the most charitable interpretation, uh, namely that my essential good humor uh, would bubble forth effortlessly, uh, no matter what the topic. So Eric Metaxas, who can get an audience rolling in the aisles without breaking a sweat, uh, has nothing to fear from this quarter. Uh, now, what I will be sharing with you tonight uh, is a reflection whose backdrop is, as you heard my Gifford lectures, uh, published, to repeat it one more time, as Sovereignty, God, State, and Self. Um, who makes the final decision? And in our time, the answer is, we do. Uh, we are the masters. We're the absolute sovereigns over that fragile piece of animated matter called the self. Now, how we got to be so, or to be seen as being so, is a long story. Uh, the story of the self alone, deserted on the little isle of the eye. Uh, but must it needs be so? So behold, if you will, the follies of the sovereign self and how it learned some hard lessons. Now, the sovereign self is nothing if not prideful. I am the master of my house. But uneasy rests the crown. Might there not be some bitter irony here embedded, namely, that the notion of the sovereign self over time undermines the dignity of the human person? Well, how can that be so? The answer lies in the fact that in divinizing and making an idol of human will and choice, we assault the relationality that alone lifts up and displays our humanity. Albert Camus, is, who was in a lifelong dialogue with Christians, as some of you may know, is surely right. One who assumes absolute authority lays, in his words, claim to nothing short of total freedom and the unlimited display of human pride. Now, for Camus, this is the dark night of nihilism, and his references to 20th century totalitarian ideologies, but his words apply to any notion of total freedom. Now, let me recast this in order to underscore certain salient points. I want to be clear about something, and that is that personal autonomy rightly understood, rightly chastened, is a great achievement of the West. But being a mature member of society does not entail complete independence from everybody else, as the sovereign self would have it. Instead, it requires a willingness and an ability to build and to sustain rich relationships with other people. Given the historic achievements of self-sovereignty, as well as its dangerous excesses, 
when human beings decided they were utterly autonomous and even godlike, we need other sorts of selves to forestall the worst that will come from untrammeled sovereign selfhood. Now, Camus reminds us that the will to dominate is not the stuff out of which grows a responsible life, a responsible citizen. For in strong versions of self-sovereignty, the self forges forth alone as the self is entirely volitional, entirely willful, and allegedly grounds all reality. What is reality? It comes down to me. The responsible self, by contrast, refrains from doing everything of which he or she is capable. Now, Camus describes the process of becoming such a responsible self as a much harder birth than one's first. His mother may have disagreed, but nevertheless, as a much harder birth than one's first, to be born as a child and then to be born in harder childhood, which consists, childbirth, which consists of being born in relation to others. Now, these are words that St. Augustine and other Christian theologians would understand as they would appreciate Camus' insistence that we are born to and for joy and gratitude. If you're an absolute sovereign self, there's nothing to be grateful for because you don't really essentially owe anybody anything. Above all, according to Augustine, we are created to love and to be loved. So let's think for a few moments, if we can bear it, of the fate of the unloved, the human beings we degrade, or in the benighted 20th century, that national socialism and communism destroyed, beginning, by the way, in the Nazi state with persons with mental disabilities, idiots, imbeciles, and morons in the gentle language of the time, and others who were in some ways infirm and dependent. What such selves had in common was that they could not be sovereign in the manner extolled and assumed by the masters. They became a blight for totalitarianism, so they had to be removed. And I would submit that they present a problem for liberal democracies, for those societies that presuppose that selves are freestanding and completely autonomous. And our society, at this moment, and in Western democracies more generally, we are per pursuing a paradoxical project. We are more aware of those with physical and mental disabilities. We want to provide them access. Yet at the same time, many of our most enthused about projects in the realm of biology and genetics aim at creating a world with no such persons in it. We will genetically engineer them away. Until that time, we can eliminate them through selective abortion, which is the fate of around 87% of Down syndrome pregnancies in the United States. And all of this with no apparent regard for how persons with disabilities and their families might come to the conclusion, indeed they have, that so-called right-to-die statutes are a way to say right to eliminate non-sovereign selves and that such laws threaten them directly. So where do we turn for alternatives? Alternatives to this sovereign self. Now I suggest in my book that we look at great moral stories, great moral fables and narratives. 
Uh, such stories warn us of hubristic overreach. They warn us of curiosity that turns deadly if it recognizes no limit, no constraint. Writes the literary critic Roger Shattuck, apropos of Mary Shelley, the author of the famous story of Dr. Frankenstein, her judgment of the presumptions and self-actions of Frankenstein in creating and then abandoning a new form of life is instructive. Apparently, it required a woman to inventory the destruction caused by a quest for knowledge and glory carried to excess and to invent the counterpower to Faust. End of the quote. I don't think it really requires a woman, as we do find a similar motif and warning in the moral fable of Jekyll and Hyde by Robert Louis Stevenson. But be that as it may, the point is that we experiment with our natures at our peril. And by experiment with our natures, I do not mean attempting to forestall terrible illnesses. This is the reductionistic argument that's often thrown in the face of those who are calling for limits, and it's ridiculous. But the argument goes like this. I see, well, if it means messing with our natures, I guess you would, would never have wanted pneumonia to be treated or a polio vaccine developed. Well, one sees how beside the point this rejoinder is. By assisting us in being whole in body and spirit as whole as we can be given what was given us at birth, we help to complete our natures, not to alter them radically. So we return to classic stories and narratives to instruct us on the excesses of the sovereign self. And I want to begin in a, in a place that you might find unlikely, um, but let's see if it works. I, I want us to consider the horrific world uh, depicted by Primo Levi in his classic book, Survival in Auschwitz, uh, perhaps known to some of you. It is impossible to imagine a world more cruelly designed to defeat the human person than that demonic social experiment, the death camp. Levy alerts us to the fact that the camps flow directly from a terrible rationalism played out to the bitter end. Nazism was not a vast irrationalism at all. It began with a set of premises, and you follow them to their logic conclusion, logical conclusion, and at the end is the death camp. If indeed there are lives unworthy of life, it follows inexorably that those who are worthy of life, masterful, sovereign selves, must remove those unworthy of life who have already been defined out of the human universe in any case. Now, Levy characterizes life in the camp as a journey toward nothingness, but then he says something remarkable. Yet no world of perfect unhappiness can exist. Our human condition is opposed to everything infinite. There is a limit on every joy and every grief. In the camps, human beings were reduced to phantoms, he tells us. Their bodies began to disappear through starvation, illness, brutality. The demolition of man, Levy calls this. Your life is reduced to the lowest possible level. You were a man who is no longer a man. First, he tells us, they annihilate you as a person, and then they kill you. It isn't enough just to kill you. They must kill the human spirit first, and our spirits are fragile. And yet... 
The conviction in his words that life has a purpose is rooted in every fiber of our being. And for some inmates of the camp, surviving the insane dream of grandeur of their masters kept them going. Now, Levy kept his own sense of purpose alive by recalling from memory the canto of Ulysses from Dante's Divine Comedy. It reminded him that there was beauty and form and sense and purpose in the world and that there might be again. Levy concludes this haunting memoir, um, a moral story of the 20th century, which was arguably the most horrible of all centuries, in this way. No human experience is without meaning or unworthy of analysis. He goes on to tell us that in the camp, thousands of human beings who differed in just about every way people can differ were thrown into a vast social experiment. And what does he learn from this? He learns that human beings are not fundamentally brutal at base. It is far more complicated. Many social habits, social Habits that connect us to one another can be silenced and quashed, but they cannot be destroyed utterly. They cannot be destroyed utterly. Now, if Primo Levi can redeem this much from the demonic horrors of death camps, surely we can find resources to draw upon as we look to common sense and dignity our sense of shame, our capacity for joy, our ability to recognize when our dignity is affronted, our ability to love, not just to use others. The non-sovereign self, or the chastened sovereign self, has readier access to all of this precisely because he or she finds intimations and realizations of such a self all around sees beauty, sadness, hope, mystery, truths to be found and discerned as part of the fabric of the universe. Now, there are several other writers that come to mind uh, to help us tame self-sovereignty. Let me mention uh, just a couple more. Uh, First, the great poet Sheshla Miwosh, and then the novelist Marilyn Robinson. Now, they understand, as does Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the subject of Eric's wonderful biography, that persons, by contrast to isolated individuals, are unique and unrepeatable. They can't easily be replaced by some new recruit. Each understands that pure thought is not greater than love. Now, Milos, who was a Nobel laureate, is also the author of one of the great books exploring the nature of the totalitarian mind. It's a book called The Captive Mind. If you haven't read it, you should put that on your list. This great work was derided by many when it was first published in the early 1950s. It was attacked by those still enamored of the world historic project of Marxism. Indeed, Milos told me over the course of a dinner conversation that he had been informed by a member of his his tenure review committee at the University of California, Berkeley, that he received tenure in spite of the fact that he had written this politically incorrect book. Now, if we take a look at the captive mind, we leave behind a world of sort of lifeless abstractions 
we enter a world of the fleshly and the concrete and the particular. He reminds us that politics often destroys concrete human beings. He never loses sight of our humanity and our fragility. Now, I recall my favorite passage from that captivating book in which Milos describes walking through a train station in Ukraine in the desperately disordered time at the beginning of World War II. And he's caught short by the following scene. This is a scene sketched by Milos now. A peasant family, husband and wife and two children, had settled down by the wall. They were sitting on baskets and bundles. The wife was feeding the younger child. The husband, who had a dark, wrinkled face and a black, drooping mustache, was pouring tea out of the kettle into a cup for the older boy. They were whispering to each other in Polish. I gazed at them until I felt moved to the point of tears. What had stopped my steps so suddenly and touched me so profoundly was their difference. This was a human group, an island in a crowd that lacked something proper to humble, ordinary human life. The gesture of a hand pouring tea, the careful, delicate handing of the cup to the child, the worried words I guessed from the movement of their lips, their isolation, the privacy in the midst of that crowd, that is what moved me. For a moment, I understood something that quickly slipped from my grasp. Now, perhaps one might suggest what Milos understood in that moment was something about the fragility and the miracle of the quotidian, the everyday He's rightly celebrated for capturing such moments in his poetry, moments that quickly slip or threaten to slip from our grasp. His poems, he tells us, are encounters with the peculiar circumstances of time and space. The portrait of that forlorn bit of humanity, huddled together, uprooted, yet making and pouring tea, this says something about human dignity. For Milos, the touchstone for 20th century politics was terror and the immediacy of stark physical pain, a phenomenon that self-encloses us, counts us off, uh, closes us off, cuts us off. That's why terrorists want to spread fear, because it desocializes us, if you will. We become, sus we become suspicious of one another. We hunker down. We huddle behind closed doors. And yet, those cries, the cries of those who are cut off in this way, can still be heard if our thinking is not entirely remote. We can still acknowledge the delicate ritual of that family making tea. Now, the 20th century mind was susceptible to seduction by socio-political doctrines that abstractly dealt out death. The 21st century has already treated us to examples of the same. Milos puts on display the impoverished, one-dimensional, flattened-out view of human beings that the totalitarian ideology of politics and self-sovereignty requires and feeds on. He indicts the vulgarized knowledge that voices birth to the feeling that everything is controllable. For example, in his words, the young cannibals who in the name of inflexible principles butchered the population of Cambodia and who had graduated from the Sorbonne 
and were simply trying to implement the philosophic ideas they had learned there. Now let's turn to the award-winning novel Gilead by Marilyn Robinson. In this beautiful book, she opens up a world of simple and complex and unremarked goodness. Any human face is a claim on you, her protagonist, the dying pastor John Ames, writes, because you can't help but understand the singularity of it, the courage and loneliness of it. In her writing, she highlights the body blessed and broken in Christian theology. Pastor Ames talks about the gift of physical particularity and how blessing and sacrament are mediated through it. It follows that God's love and mortal love are not so separate after all. There is a splendor revealed in a child's face. Robinson's Pastor Ames also reminds us that the great Hebrew prophets chastised and loved a concrete people, something too many of our contemporaries who don the mantle of prophecy have abandoned as they despise those they criticize and the country that is their home. One more example, anti-Nazi theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer who reminds us throughout his ethics that bodiliness and human life belong inseparably together. And this has very far-reaching consequences for our understanding of every aspect of human life. For we can use the bodies of others and our own bodies for well or ill. The right to live, then, is for Bonhoeffer the very essence, indeed, thinking of the Nazi policies of destroying, of, of murdering those with disabilities, even the most wretched life from our sight is worth living before God. What should ongoingly amaze us, he reminds us, is that many of the lives we imagine are utterly wretched, are in fact not. People find purpose and even joy in the midst of extraordinary difficulty and suffering. This is not all they find, to be sure, but we can see redemptive moments where we might least expect them. And then Bonifer writes, freedom is not a quality of man, nor is it an ability. It is not a possession, an object, nor is it a form of existence, but a relationship and nothing else. In truth, freedom is a relationship between two persons. Being free means being free for the other because the other has bound me to him. In relation with the other, I am free. We understand and define freedom in relationship. Now, these are strong words that speak to embodied realities and that critique a whole powerful tradition in Western thought that has come into view and triumphed in our own time. Bonifer here reminds us that human life is always lived in concrete communities, not in some abstract nowhere. In a society such as ours, with our history, one has to hope and pray that these recognitions can be ongoingly rekindled and kept alive. And I think there are those who are doing precisely that, who remind us that we are not in a zero-sum game in this life of ours. We are not in a situation where the exact sum I give is something taken away from me absolutely and appropriated by someone else, so I become impoverished. 
That kind of world is the cruel fantasy of Jean-Paul Sartre. Hell is other people. A desolate, dead, and lonely world. The Bonhoeferian world is one of people who embrace the dignity of the everyday rather than despising it, who find joy in simple things, who find dignity and a decent job well done. Our bodies define a limit, yes, but also a possibility as we enter into community, for we become who we are in our relationships with others. Now, St. Augustine's fear was that as we gave up on God's sovereignty, other forms of human sovereignty would strive to become superordinate and destructive. And that, I submit, is exactly what we have seen. Augustine was keenly aware of the fact that any human institution can be turned into an idolatry, whether of family or state or anything else. Now, the altar at which we worship nowadays, as I've already stated, is the sovereign self, whose key terms, as a reminder, are control, doing your own thing, choice as a kind of absolute, uh, willfulness, um, rather than the will being engaged in sometimes tragic weighing of options where there is no clear-cut good or bad on either side. The image of the Augustinian pilgrim, which is Augustine's image of the human being, of the Christian in the city of man, that sort of person is precisely the responsible self-critical self who can challenge the idolatries of his or her age without opting out of that time altogether, as if one could, as if one could flee into a realm at least theoretically removed from the turmoil of social and political life. Now I want to turn to some final concluding thoughts from Albert Camus, a thinker who understood our indebtedness to those who had gone before, those who had crafted the possibilities for a self-reflective culture for the West at its best, condemning the world of moral relativism and, and, and absolute nihilism that emerged in modernity, didn't exhaust modernity, mind you, but it emerged in modernity, Camus indicts philosophies that are used as goads or alibis for abstract mass murder or social engineering, the knowing manipulation of people towards ends that you desire over which they have no say. He indicts those who take refuge in ideologies and erect slave camps under the flag of freedom. In his great essay, The Rebel, he writes, if we believe in nothing, if nothing has any meaning and we can affirm no values whatsoever, then everything is possible and nothing has an importance. There is no pro or con. The murderer is neither right nor wrong. We are free to stoke the crematory fires or to devote ourselves to the care of lepers. Since nothing is either true or false, good or bad, our guiding principle will be to demonstrate that we are the most efficient and the most powerful, the strongest, and that is the only measure of success. Now here Camus sketches a world of the will to power triumphant, a world of executioners and victims, as he puts it. 
How does one tell the story of that triumph in the 20th century and our less dramatic versions of it in our own time? It is nothing less than the history of European pride. In rebelling against a world that is cruel or murderous or systematically unjust, the character that Camus calls the rebel, the social critic who wants to see things change, this authentic rebel observes a limit. He or she affirms the existence of a borderline, that there are limits, and also that he respects and wishes to preserve the existence of certain things on this side of the borderline. I take him to be saying that we don't politicize everything, that the slogan, the personal is political, that emerged in the 1960s was a, a, a dangerous and deadly idea that it over-personalizes politics, among other things. Now, when a person rebels, he, she identifies with others rather than reputing them, according to Camus. One rejects resentment. One rejects a corrosive envy of what one does not have. And he sees this resentment and envy driving much of the politics that he criticizes. The authentic rebel wishes to defend what he or she is, in fact, a human being, a person. And in rebellion, the rebel finds not isolation, but solidarity. So strong is Camus' claim in this regard that he declares that anyone who claims the right to destroy this solidarity loses the right to be called a rebel and becomes instead acquiescent in murder. For rebellion must, must respect the limit it discovers in itself, a limit where minds meet and in meeting begin to exist. I rebel, therefore we exist. The alternative is unlimited freedom. In his words, the negation of others and the suppression of pity. What is a totalitarian society but a story of the unbridled freedom to manipulate and destroy others. The nihilist becomes godlike, a rival of the creator, with hatred of the creator transmogrified, transformed into hatred of creation. And if you've read some of the literature that came out of the 20th century totalitarianisms, this is a theme that leaps right out at you. Sort of hatred at God for having created. God must be destroyed. The window to transcendence must be slammed shut. Um, the heavens must be nothing but an empty space, if you will. Because if God is sovereign, then it destroys our self-sovereignty. So God cannot exist. Augustine and Camus come together, interestingly enough, in an answer to what happens to people to live, who live without grace and without justification, without justice. A frenzied will to power triumphs. Finally, Camus tells us, one must insist on the fact that there is a human nature and resist all attempts to turn human beings into simply the product of historic forces that are altogether outside their own control. A final quote or the next to final quote from him. Absolute revolution presupposes the absolute malleability of human nature and its possible reduction to the condition of a historical force. But 
Rebellion is the refusal to be treated as an object and to re be reduced to simple historical terms. It is the affirmation of a nature common to all, which eludes the world of power. Let me just mention parenthetically here that if any of you have had the misfortune of reading some of the transhumanist literature that's out there now, these imagined worlds of human beings that have been totally manipulated, that it, the assumption is we're totally malleable and we can be manipulating and creating creatures that are sort of half human, half android, half human, half animal, so that we can have weird gizmos implanted in our bodies so we don't have to eat anything because we take a nourishment from the air. I don't know. I mean, very strange stuff. I just... you. you Conjure up your wildest fantasy, and this literature goes beyond it. Let me just put it that way. Um, and these people are now are being taken very seriously. There is a whole body of literature. There are conferences on the subject. And what comes through so clearly, again, is this vision of the absolute sovereignty of the self, including the right and power of contemporary selves to manipulate human beings out of existence as we now know them and come up with an entirely different thing. So if you think this sort of stuff is simply relegated to history, you're wrong. It's happening all around us in different forms. Now, the words that I quoted from Camus, if you can remember them, since my uh, interjection. These are words about the affirmation of a nature common to all. These are words that totalitarian would scoff at and that the radical postmodern could never speak. But speak such words we must. Camus reminds us that the fruit of Western culture requires that we remember not only Athens but Jerusalem. The strain of political thought, as I was taught it, was all the line coming from Athens, no Jerusalem. So you had maybe a chapter from St. Augustine, a few little bits from Aquinas, and that's it. Phew, we got over that. You know, so we can leap from Augustine and maybe Cicero to Machiavelli real fast. So the whole sort of Jerusalem strand of our culture uh, is forgotten, is bracketed, if you will. The West has emerged out of a complex give and take, a dialectic between skepticism and faith. And if you lose the faith side of it, all you've got is skepticism. And you've got a bunch of skeptics who are not skeptical about their skepticism. <laughs> and for Camus, the beauty of the West at its best and our ability to respond to it is one possible source for regeneration of our culture, which recalls the common dignity of man and the world he lives in, and which we must now defend and the face of those who insult it. Now, selves that are less than sovereign understand, or can understand, and live with such complex recognitions. It is easier to be comfortably sovereign and in control, or at least to think that you are, but then one lives in a dream world that will fade or crash to bits as all dreams of incandescent glory can and must, leaving a trail of wreckage, of course, in their wake. Selves immersed in a world with and among their fellow human beings 
and what one might call a relational ecology, affirm, respect, and find joy in life's everydayness and its simple joys and pleasures. So love may not be all that we need, but without it, we are empty husks rushing onward into the abyss. And on that happy note, I will thank you for your attention. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thank you, Dr. Elstein. You can see why we've had her back. Um, we now have time uh, for questions. If you'd like to ask a question, and uh, <clears throat> let me say, ask a question, if you'd like to ask a question, but uh, please make sure that you keep your question in the form of a question. I hope you don't mind my being so rigid that way. Um, but if you'd like to ask a question, uh, please step to that microphone there. I think I'm going to ask the first question um, since I'm going to be standing over here. My first question is, Dr. Elstein, would since you you're comment? The chair. Since I'm the chair, I, I guess am. I'm the I don't chair. Know what your chair is, but it would be your. It's a ret- it's a rattan okay. uh, secondhand piece that okay. I picked up in a bric-a-brac shop. I thought it would be something. Yeah, like that. yeah. Thank you, thank you. Um, so. Uh, <clears throat> As I was saying, uh, no, my question uh, to you, Dr. Elstein, yes. is would you comment on libertarianism mm-hmm. and how does libertarianism, is, is that, don't tell me that I asked your question. Oh, how awful. That's amazing. Great minds think alike, my friend, my new best friend. Awesome. Um, if you could talk a little bit about libertarianism and how uh, it relates to, to what we're talking about and maybe uh, refer to Ayn Rand uh, in your answer. Thank you. Well, I think uh, an Randian um, libertarianism is, in fact, a variant on the sovereign self, don't you? I mean, what you've got is uh, a vision of a kind of grand, masterful self, um, a vision of, certainly, of radical autonomy. Um, Now, having said this, and I'll say more about it in a minute, doesn't mean that every position... Um, advocated by those who call themselves libertarian should be dismissed out of hand. There may be something worth thinking about. But certainly the libertarian understanding of the self, to the extent that it's spelled out, and certainly Anne Rand does that, uh, is a story of this masterful self. Um, I've had some... Um, Interesting might be the way to put it, uh, reviews of some of my work from uh, the Ayn Rand publications, and uh, they don't like what I have to say very much. And I have a hunch that it's precisely because uh, they are committed to this view of sort of radical autonomy, and I am obviously committed to something very different coming out of sort of Augustinian tradition uh, and a view of the self as relational, essentially Um, social, uh, born into and for community. So the libertarian, as we would say in the academy, the libertarian anthropology, and that doesn't mean you're off on some island observing the natives. It's it's uh, the notion of the understanding of that which is human. So the libertarian anthropology is, in fact, a variant of of radical self-sovereignty. Next question. 
Yeah, yeah, please make your way to the, uh, to the microphone. I'll ask one. You mentioned the contradiction early on in your remarks between, you know, the whole um, kind of pro-choice or pro-death culture that we're living. Yeah. But yet, in, we, we take such care now with the handicapped and those kind of certain types that we never used to so much in society. And I'm just curious where that comes from. This great care on one side for the living yeah, handicapped, yeah. but yet the, the death yeah. side. It's a very interesting paradox, isn't it? Did you did you understand the question? It's you know that 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 paradox I noted, where we on the one hand uh, so much care, we pass laws, um, you know the Disabilities Rights Act and so on and so forth, equal access, and yet uh, we think the world would be a tremendously improved place if we didn't have any more people like that in it, as I mentioned. And I have a hunch that what's being reflected here are two real strands. Of Western of Western culture, um, uh, both of them I would submit indebted in some ways to Christianity, but taking some wrong turns along the way. Um, the strand that says we should remove uh, these folks um, emerges in the writing of those who defend it, um, and even in the writings of those who defended the killing of persons with handicaps in the National Socialist regime as a form of compassion. It's compassionate. If these people could tell us what they wanted, they would say that they wish they had never been born. So great is their misery. So it's a twisted, sort of ugly form of compassion. And they had the audacity, you know, to somehow call this Christian, uh, when in fact it's a deformation a distortion of authentic compassion. Um, and on the side of access and care for those who are here, um, I think it also, it also reflects the strand of some compassion and care that all persons without distinction should receive. Certainly it took a long time, it was a long battle to get those with, uh, uh, who are persons with handicaps, especially those with mental uh, disabilities to be incorporated within the category of the human in the first instance, because uh, certainly since the Cartesian revolution, we we define people so much by their ability to engage in certain rational operations uh, that those who were persons with mental retardation were not seen as fully human. Um, so it took a lot to push back against that. So there's this bitter, terrible irony. You know, oh yeah, we, we need to have access on and so forth in schools and um, and assistance, but gosh, you know, sure be good if nobody had to go through that again, uh, if nobody had to suffer. One, I don't know if any of you looked this up on the internet, but some of the attacks on Sarah Palin because she had given birth to a Down syndrome child were absolutely chilling. Um, a friend of mine said, you got to look some of this stuff up. And I thought he was exaggerating about what he'd found, so I looked it up. It's extraordinary. You know, she and her husband are absolutely irresponsible and set this horrible example by bringing to term a down, preg down pregnancy. Um, and one fellow did a kind of cost-benefit analysis of how much allegedly taking care of little Trig Palin would cost over the course of his lifetime and how it's, you know, com again, completely fiscally irresponsible to have such a child. Absolutely extraordinary. So it shows you this other strand that's very powerful. Most of the time people don't want to articulate 
um, the fullness of that approach. But it comes out every now and then, and it came out in that, in that instance. Dr. Elstein, your arguments, uh, very powerful arguments, seem to stem from the humanities, uh, chiefly the citations of Levy yes. and Miloš yes, yes. Um, and Camus, of course. Yes. So there's this philosophical and, and humanistic approach. Yeah. But we, we live in an age where the sciences permeate, the scientific method, I should say, mm-hmm. permeates um, our understanding of the human. Yeah. You mentioned the transhumanist movement. Yeah. Um, how will these arguments play in that environment? Where can we find perhaps those who would um, offer us alliance in the scientific world? Um, That's a very good question, and it's a huge challenge. I obviously picked my examples uh, knowingly. Um, I picked them in part um, because I wanted to bring forward some examples of people in the humanities who weren't necessarily identified as Christian, to show that this wasn't an exclusively Christian argument. Um, But certainly these people embody the humanities, and many of them, of course, have Christian backgrounds or were in dialogue, as was Camus, with Christians throughout their lives. That said, it's very clear that the authority in our day and age um, is the voice of science, not the voice of the humanities. And when a scientist says something, it's a trump card. It sort of automatically trumps another voice. Um, that's a tremendous responsibility uh, for those who are in science, and I'm afraid that they are not, many are not acquitting it very well, are not handling that responsibility very well. Uh, there are some in the sciences who are far more modest about what science is and what it can do, and how much of a mystery there really is at the very heart of human being, of, of the human being. Um, and I've talked to some people who run laboratories who talk about uh, the the fact that um, an embryo, you know, the cells and so on, that there's there's a kind of there's a kind of hush that settles over the the group, that there's a kind of sanctity that this have that no random clump of cells has. Uh, but again, these are not the voices that we hear in the public conversation. Often the voices that we hear, I think, are uh, those of what I would call scientism, those who have made an absolute ideology out of a certain understanding of science that sometimes isn't even a very intelligent understanding of science. Um, Because most of the, or many, let me not say most, I haven't done a study on this, but many of the the scientists who are uh, deeply serious about their work as scientists are also quite aware of the fact uh, that their ability to understand everything is is limited. They don't, and they can't. And that at times they have to simply behold, as I said, some kind of mystery. Uh, I'm heartened by the fact that uh, we see springing up in different uh, medical schools and uh, in uh, scientific settings, uh, groups now who are quite openly concerned with this issue uh, some of them quite openly professing their Christianity and bringing that to bear on these on this range of issues, um, and that ten years ago, fifteen years ago, that wasn't happening so much. So that's an interesting development. Um, we could speculate on how to account for it um, and why some space has sort of opened up. But I think it derives in part from the fact that these are people who have all the scientific bona fides. You know, they prove themselves as scientists. So you can't say. 
crummy scientists, so of course they're saying, you know, voicing silly superstition. That you can't do that. You can't discredit them. So when they argue that you've got to look at some of these questions at the public voice of science, at the fact that more scientists have to speak out against those who claim the mantle of science in the public discussion. One of the things, and I know there's a line, so I'll make this quick. One of the things I, I observed when I was on a panel before the House Judiciary Committee, it was a subcommittee of the House Judiciary Committee, um, some years back when they were considering um, an em embryonic stem cell debate issue um, was the the fact that the people uh, on the panel who were certainly opposed to what I was saying were not properly scientists at all. They were from the gen tech industry. They are people who take certain scientific developments and then marketize them and become publicists for what they're doing and are, are often seen as as voicing the scientific perspective. And and this fellow, in fact, tried to do that in the discussion and said, you know, with all due respect, Professor Elston, you've never been in my laboratory. And I said, well, with all due respect, Mr. So-and-so, you've never been in my classroom. You know, so, uh, what, what, you know, what are we going to do here, sort of, you know? Um, but I, you know, but that's the kind of, again, trump card that gets thrown down, often by people that other, that real scientists would find dubious. Um, and I think that has to be called out, too, more than it is. Uh, Professor Elsing, yes. thank you first for a brilliant lecture. Thank you. Um, you began to answer this in your discussion of libertarian anthropology, yeah. but I'm going to pose it anyway. Sure. Isn't the, the real problem that the sovereign self is a fiction? And it may be a useful fiction yeah. that we've invented, and there may be all kinds of benefits, but it really isn't fundamentally true. And, and in a sense, we have a harder time um, justifying the sovereign self than we do a relational self. Yeah. It's, it's, it's fascinating because um, if you know some of the folks who are involved in these discussions, um, who... Um, make all these elaborate statements defending sovereign selves, and you know something about who, who they are and how they live, you know that the lives they live are entirely dependent you know, on other people doing things for them. I won't spell out who she is and so on, but you know, there are situations where, where, where it's, very, it's very clear that, um, that this is what's going on. Um, but what, so what's fascinating is the way that we have contrived to accept these arguments, in a sense, um, and to deny the reality of what's really going on in generating and sustaining those who preach about the sovereign self. Because again, without relationships all the way along, they couldn't be selves of that sort or pretend that they are. So that's the irony or the paradox at the heart of the sovereign self. The problem is when people start to act on those presuppositions. It may be a fiction, but when people begin to act on it and take that as their guiding assumption, very problematic things happen. For example, in family law, when you think about uh, some of the uh, assumptions of radical autonomy that pertain there. So you don't think of a family as a relational entity, but as each person within it, including the child, as having a separate radically autonomous existence. So even though it's a fiction, it enters into law. 
and it affects how family law is dealt with, how real cases are handled, how real people have to live with the results of that. Um, so that's, that's the problem that we face. That's the, um, and the, the, the vexation of it uh, in many ways. Uh, you can also see this, of course, in medical ethics and so on, what the assumption of radical autonomy has done to our thinking about, especially about end-of-life issues and so on. Um, so a fiction that makes its way into reality, if you will. I think that's the trajectory we see now. Dr. Elstein, thank you for a, a wonderful lecture. Thank you. And this trajectory toward uh, beauty and mercy. What about a pro-life libertarian ethos that roots itself conscientiously in the unable rights of life, liberty, property, stewardship, yeah. in the biblical order of creation, and refracted through the uh, Reformation, the Declaration, the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments? All right, say, say again, say again. I, I got... <laughs> I, I got e Eric I, wanted me to be brief. All right, I got the pro-life libertarian self, and, uh, but I... Or ethos. Or ethos, got that. And, um, but I didn't get the rest of it. You were speaking okay. quickly. Say again. In Genesis 1 and 2, yeah. uh, with the gifts of life, liberty, and stewardship yep. over the earth slash property, refracted to the Reformation, yep. the Declaration of Independence, and the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments, that to me is a healthy libertarian understanding yeah. anchored by the pro-life predicate of life, liberty, property, yeah. slash pursuit of happiness. All right. I, I'm not sure why you want to call that libertarian. I mean, it's, it strikes me that... L li liberty, anchored liber by yeah. the prior definitions of life. Right. But liberty and libertarianism are not synonymous. And I think we have to make, make this be very clear about this, that one can be uh, pro-liberty in the sense in which, you know, John Adams and George Washington and so on were pro-liberty without in any way being a libertarian. Uh, in fact, to the extent that they were indebted to either John Locke or some members of the Scottish Enlightenment, they were not libertarians. Um, Locke is often misunderstood as being some kind of radical individualist. But if you read Locke and his famous uh, second treatise, which influenced the founders, one of the things you find is that he begins with the assumption of a social world, of a pre-political social world. Um, he was influenced, unsurprising he would argue this way, because he was still influenced by uh, scholastic education of the sort that a real radical individualist like Thomas Hobbes, for those of you who've done political theory, uh, utterly denied. So if you're looking at strains, you know, the strain from Locke, that more social strain, is the one that influenced our understanding of liberty. The Scottish Enlightenment, those folks were more civic republicans, far more social in their understanding of the political community and so on. So do not equate liberty and libertarian because they're quite, they're quite different. I think you could say that libertarianism is, is liberty on steroids, something like that. I mean, it's, you know, it, it, knows, it knows no limits. And ordered liberty of the sort that our founders were committed to indeed has limits. And in fact, much of the struggle of our, of our history, constitutionally speaking, is how we articulate those limits. So the prior limitation of definition of pro-life is not strong enough to rescue the libertarian word. Um, I don't think that it is. It, it strikes me that, um, by definition, a, a, if you're pro-life, uh, you're acknowledging at the most profound level um, a relationship, are you not? 
um, a relationship of the uh, the born and the unborn. Um, you know, a deep uh, bond um, that is not to be um, severely uh, truncated and broken. Um, so to say you're a pro-life libertarian seems to me in some ways a contradiction in terms. You could certainly be a pro-life defender of liberty in the understanding that I, that I already proffered. Uh, doctor, the newly passed uh, health care bill yeah. places in tension um, a lot of um, right to life and um, the rationing of medical care. Who are the key players on each side of uh, this, uh, these arguments, and how do you think it's going to work out? Oh, my. With, with, the, health, with the health care bill and uh, the abortion question and the end-of-life question and all of those all of those basic issues, that's what you have in mind. Um, well, I mean, the, the first problem, of course, is that uh, nobody understands what all the implications of the bill are. I mean, there are some explicit things in it now that have drawn fire, you know, from the Catholic bishops and so on, on the abortion question. Uh, there are some very developed worries uh, that should not be seen simply as hysteria, that there would be panels that would be making decisions about who receives treatment and who does not. Uh, that was much poo-pooed when it was raised by some in the, in the pre-election period. But, you know, if you read those who were pretty calm analysts, it would seem that that is a, a real possibility of how this would play itself out. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this, this behemoth bill creates something like 138 new agencies I mean, what a nightmare. I mean, if you think about all of those and all the things they might be assigned to do. So um, my, my hunch is that, um, that if you expect the worst, uh, you're probably right, uh, unfortunately, and that um, the best thing we can do at this point is to try to push simply for clarification of what's in the darn thing, and then push uh, to oppose certainly some of its features. Whether it could be repealed wholesale, I have no idea. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not an elected official. I don't know what the chances of that are. And and certainly we do have to care about, you know, the well-being of others. I don't uh, on the health front. Uh, I do not think this is the way to, to do it. Um, and you know who the participants are on both sides of it. And um, I was at a discussion um, just a few few nights ago here in New York City on Saturday night where the health care bill came up and uh, the argument, it was suggested that um, all Catholics should support it because, um, according to the defenders, it incorporated elements of Catholic social thought. You know, the concern for, uh, deep concern for others, uh, no one is to be not, to be denied that which helps to sustain life, but it seems to me that um, one of the complexities of politics, and this is something Reinhold Niebuhr taught us, is that you can agree on a fundamental principle: nobody should be without that which sustains life. Let's say, but have profound disagreements on how to reach that goal. Uh, so to suggest that that the principle 
and a single public policy are just fitted together like super glue, if you will, is wrong. But when that's done, it suggests that those who have questions or criticisms of the health care bill somehow don't want people to have health care or don't care about you know, people being getting medically well served. And that's simply not true. So I think the fact that it comes out like that speaks to um, the uh, deformations, the troubles in our current political um, and civic debates.